Hey, it's Ed. Before we get started, I want to thank two brand new podcast supporters, Katie Hoskins and Sam Ryerson. Both Katie and Sam signed up to support the podcast through Patreon. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to mountainandprairie.com slash support. Second thing, events. The Bozeman Live podcast was a huge success. Thank you so much to everybody who came out, everybody who shared it on social media, bought tickets, spread the word. It really could not have gone better, and I'll be releasing that as a actual podcast and releasing some photos from the event in the next week or so, so stay tuned for that. Two other events, I'm going to be down in Tucson, Arizona with the Altar Valley Conservation Alliance on September 21st, doing a little talk at their annual fundraising dinner. So if you're in Arizona, near Tucson, you should come by. It's going to be great. There is information on my website on that. And lastly, on October 3rd, I'm going to be co-hosting the Southern Colorado Conservation Awards here in Colorado Springs. It is a really fun and inspiring event where we recognize and celebrate four groups of different conservation heroes here in the state of Colorado. One of the winners is past podcast guest Pete McBride. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should. And then another group of winners is Ranchlands, the Phillips family. And they are going to be on the podcast very soon, so stay tuned for that. But if you find yourself near Colorado Springs in early October, I highly encourage you to attend. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Bill DeBuise. Bill is a renowned writer, conservationist, and farmer who's known as one of the most influential thinkers in the modern-day American West. To call Bill prolific would be a blatant understatement. A few of his many books include The Walk, A Great Aridness, River of Traps, and The Last Unicorn. For more than 40 years, Bill has owned and stewarded a small farm in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of northern New Mexico, a property that's heavily influenced his life, work, and appreciation for land. I was fortunate enough to meet Bill at his farm for this interview, which was a thrill and an experience I won't soon forget. Bill was born and raised on the East Coast, but moved to New Mexico soon after college to take a job as a research assistant with the writer Robert Coles. Bill found himself immersed in the arid landscapes of the American Southwest and very quickly fell in love with the people, culture, and terrain. From then on, Bill's life and work centered around the land. Whether earning his Ph.D., working for the Nature Conservancy and the Conservation Fund, or pursuing full-time writing, his life serves as an inspiring case study of how to meld on-the-ground conservation work with high-level aspirational writing and journalism. My biggest challenge with this conversation was figuring out how to fit five hours of questions into one single hour. We start by talking about how Bill ended up in New Mexico. Then we talk a good bit about his farm. We talk about lessons learned from his work in land conservation and techniques he uses to find common ground among competing stakeholders. We talk a lot about his writing process and routine, including Bill's excellent advice related to the technical and psychological aspects of writing. 
We also discussed several of his books and how writing each book has influenced his perspective and appreciation for his beloved New Mexico home. Bill offers up a very useful and completely unique technique for summoning gratitude, a practice I believe we can all benefit from. And as usual, we talk about his favorite books, his favorite location in the West, and the best advice he ever received. It was a dream come true to spend time with Bill at his farm, so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Maybe the best place to start is with our surroundings, where we are, because I think this wins the prize for the best interview location in the history <laughs> of the podcast. But can you uh, talk a bit about where we are right now? And and you, you've written books about it, but <laughs> if you could just kind of describe where we are and how you came to be here. Well, we're, we're in El Valle, New Mexico, uh, close to the Rio de las Rampas, the River of Traps, runs out of the high country of the Sangre de Cristo toward the Rio Grande. And uh, this is an old community. People have been here since the early 1800s when this village began to hive off from another village a little bit downstream called Las Rampas that was uh, first settled around 1750. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the deep north, the deep Hispanic north of northern New Mexico. So we we share a similar background as far as where we were born and uh both east coast but how did you how did you end up here i mean what, what was the uh how did you initially decide all right i i need a prop i want a property in new mexico nothing that conscious uh, ever occurred <laughs> so no uh, master plan <laughs> no there was no this is just you know one accident uh, spawned by another um but I graduated from UNC back in Carolina in uh, 1972, and a fellow by the name of Robert Coles, who at the time was a real American celebrity. He'd just won the Pulitzer Prize, and he'd been on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, the paparazzi were driving him and his wife crazy uh, on the outskirts of Boston, where he'd lived most of his life. And uh, so he and his wife decided to move out to the um, end of the earth, which was uh, the North Valley of Albuquerque, um, in order for him to continue the series he'd been working on, something called Children of Crisis, which looked at um, how children of minorities figure out that they're in a minority and where they mm. fit in the the power structure and social structure of the world. Well, this guy, Robert Coles, um, terrific man, really a genius. He was the, the first year that the MacArthur Foundation gave out their so-called genius grants. They gave one to Bob Coles. So that's the kind of guy he was. Anyhow, he in those days was funded by the Ford Foundation, and the Ford Foundation committed a kind of philanthropic extortion. They said, we'll continue to fund you, but on the condition that you involve young people in what you do and show them how you do it. And I wound up being one of those young oh, people. Wow. Uh, handed along from people at UNC who introduced me to people at Duke who, introduced, who were working with Coles. Coles was just beginning to teach at Duke a little bit. And somehow I got, on, got offered a, 
a research assistant uh, position with Coles uh, for that one year. This was 1972 and 73. And it was kind of against Coles' best instincts to do this. And I was such a bad research assistant (laughs) that I confirmed all those worst (laughs) instincts. And... uh, and I think he realized he probably should never have hired me, but the but uh, a consequence of his having hired me was I he brought me out to New Mexico. He didn't want his research assistants to be too close to him or too close to the territory where he was doing his research, so he sent us up north here. Okay. And that year, 1972, I lived in Truchas, New Mexico, which is about 10 miles from where we are right uh-huh. now, and that was a really rough place in those days and it was an interesting experience for a young gringo who was still very wet behind the ears uh, to learn to uh, survive in Truchos. And how did you end up in that community of all of everywhere you could have been? Well, we found a place to live, you know, and and, uh, and we're introduced to some people. I mean, again, it's just people handing people along. Uh It's it's you're introduced to somebody and ask for a little help, and they give a little help, and so, well, that's where you are. That's and uh, so that's what got me out to New Mexico, and I was a little bit like, uh, you know, the stories about the goslings when they uh, hatch from the egg, and the first warm thing that walks by, <laughs> mom, <laughs> you know? And, well, I was imprinted on northern New Mexico. I was still okay. hatching at the time, and I'm... I imprinted on northern New Mexico, and I'm still here. And so as a kid growing up in North Carolina, did you ever have any – did you love the West? I mean, did you read books about the West? Was it something kind of a goal in your head or or a place like, I'd I'd love to spend time there? Was it more – it just kind of happened, as you said. You know, I've read all kinds of books. I read books about the sea. I read books about the West. I read, read books about New York City. I wanted to go all those yeah. places. Yeah. It's just this is the one where this I wound up. And I'll confess that when Coles offered me the job to come out to New Mexico, I had to look on the map to remind myself whether it, New Mexico was to the left of Arizona or to the right of Arizona. I mean, I my... Geography wasn't so hot. <laughs> you, you know, you're you're so well known as a writer and a thinker, but you've also got a ton of experience in on the ground action conservation. I mean, you spent a ton of your career or a, a good bit of your career with Nature Conservancy and Conservation Fund. If exactly. I'm yeah. Can you? How did that enter the picture? When did that come into to your your career? Well, I was I was out here for a number of years mm-hmm. in New Mexico, and I. I I was such a disaster with coals. In a way, I wanted to make amends. And and one of the ways I tried to make amends was by writing a book about this land and that that got to why I was such a terrible research assistant. I couldn't write about the people Mm -hmm. back in those days until I understood the land. And so this book that I wrote, which which I wound up taking to graduate school and turning into a Ph.D. thesis— Uh, was my way of trying to grapple with all the consequences of being a lousy research assistant. Well, when I got my degree, there were no jobs in academe, mm-hmm. in the liberal arts. I mean, just none. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough that through friends that I had made back in Chapel Hill, uh, I became um, 
aware that the job of directing the North Carolina chapter of the Nature Conservancy was available. I applied for that job, and I wound up getting that job. So That's I great. moved back to North Carolina and, uh, and held that job for about five years. So when you think back, you know, knowing how your career has progressed and, and all the things you've written, what, what were the lessons that you learned from that you know, real uh, tangible conservation work, and I guess managing people, man, you know, trying to understand the landscapes, understand landowners, just all the different complexities that come with conservation easements and conservation in general. I guess what what really stood out for me uh, were uh, two or three things. One is you got a real education in the land and the features of the land and, and what it could do and what it couldn't do. So that was part of it. You also got from that kind of work um, a real uh, deep introduction into the diversity of the people out there in the world. And, you know, you're, you're making friends with them. You're negotiating with them. You're fighting them sometimes. And uh, so that led all led to the third thing, which uh, real conservation, when you get to the nitty-gritty, is deep politics. Um, and uh, so that was a kind of education for me uh, that I could never have gotten out of uh, an academic life or, or strictly out of a writer's life. And I think um, the education in deep politics and cutting deals and Figuring out the psychology of the person you're, you're, you know, a bit of a struggle with, and all that kind of stuff. That that has helped me as a writer a lot. Yeah, I would and, think and so. Just getting a deeper understanding of the world, you know, and and I continued that work after I left North Carolina, came back to New Mexico. Then I did that kind of work here in New Mexico and in Arizona, a little bit in Wyoming, and and so that was my. I thought of it as my postgraduate education in the in the real West. And so when you came back out this way, were you also were you writing that whole time, even in North Carolina, was writing a big part of, of your life or did that ramp I, up kind of I wanted it to be, yeah. but there wasn't much time and I had small children. Yeah. Um, no, so <laughs> um but if my when my family and I would go on vacation, I would spend the mornings writing on oh, vacation. Really? That's how badly I wanted to. Like, what were you writing write? at that point? Like, what was the, the short subjects? stories? Okay, short stories and some little memoir things, and then revisions to this uh, this book that I'd written that I'd turned into a, a, grad, a, a PhD thesis. Yeah. That book finally came out in 1985, and, and it had to go through quite a few drafts, so I was working on that sometimes evenings, sometimes weekends while, while I was working for the Nature Conservancy. When you look back on, on that book in particular, I, I'm just trying to see how hard on yourself you are if you're like me. Do you, do you look back on that book fondly, or do you look back on it and think, man, I, I should have written this differently, or I should have written that differently? Yeah, how, do, how do you look back at your old work? Well, I I look back at it fondly, uh-huh. but I recognize that there were some some things I got wrong. See, that's that, a great in that book. <laughs> and I'm a very fortunate person in that I got to correct those mistakes because uh-huh. um, in 2015, uh, in partnership with the University of New Mexico Press, uh, I put out a revised edition of that book 
So I went back through it, and I, you don't get to the opportunity to correct your mistakes of 30 years ago very often, but I did <laughs> in this particular instance, so I'm happy about that. Uh, so back to the form. Um, can you talk a little bit about the walk? And I, I think people just need to buy it and read it um, because talking about it, it, it's an amazing book. But I guess, can you talk about the the sense of place? When did you come to appreciate the idea of a sense of place? I think very early on. Really? I think that has always... When I was at UNC and studying as a kind of sideline to my main studies, studying creative writing, I wanted to write things in which the land was a character, Mm -hmm. not just a stage for the human beings in there. So that that sense of the land as shaping people, as shaping uh, behaviors and possibilities, uh, somehow has always been with me. And you were asking about um, what the impact of the land conservation work was. Well, that was a great teacher for me, the land conservation work. But so also has been this farm, this place where we are right now. Uh, And I consider this little chunk of territory to be one of the most important mentors in my life. And and that I'm very fortunate in that I get to walk out this door and go and learn from this land uh, every day. Can you talk about your your practice of learning about the land? Well, you know, I grow a crop of hay. I'm taking care of the fences. I'm irrigating all that stuff. I'm bringing in wood to heat the home through the winter. I'm tending this little farm. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. And but I'm also, every day, I go out and walk these hills, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I try to observe uh, the life in the land as closely as I can. And some days it's a sort of a walking meditation, and some days it's a, a much more conscious kind of uh, analysis. Some days I just I go out feeling crummy, and, and because of the walk, I come back feeling good. Mm-hmm. And that book you mentioned, The Walk, is partly about that that practice. And it's, uh, it's also about a very difficult time in my life and about learning to deal with uh, grief and, uh, and restore a sense of uh, hope. Uh, and the land really helped me do that. And, and the book is the story of that. I'm curious about how you structured, how you... St- how you wrote the book because it, it's I think a lot of people have have the idea that they'd like to write a book like that I mean it, there's a there's a great tradition of of people writing you know great authors writing great books about the land but I think it, it seems like it would be so hard to do when the land is kind of the main character and so I loved it because it it kind of will veer into certain directions you get a little bit of history there and then a little bit of you know, your personal story there, but it's all interconnected by this. I mean, when you, this is kind of a, a strange question, but when you, did you outline, outline it out or did you just kind of start writing it and it came out and then you restructured it? I just, that seems like it would be so complicated to, to write a book like that. Well, I mean, I, I could, you know, write some thoughts down and it would be a nightmare, but how do you do it so well? 
I had been struggling with how to begin the first essay. That book is comprised of three essays. And uh, I was struggling to figure out how to start the first essay. And I was down at a friend's ranch down in the boot heel of New Mexico. One morning I woke up at a cup of coffee on the portal and all of a sudden the first sentence just came to me you know just boom like it was a letter delivered into my brain and uh i thought hey that's not bad and uh i went and got a piece of paper and pen and i wrote it down and i looked at it and i realized in that first sentence was the in here, the structure of the first five pages of the essay. Mm-hmm. And so when I came home from that trip to that ranch, I'm back here in the little studio over there, I, I sat down and I, I wrote those five pages. And when I had finished the five pages, I saw that in hearing in those five pages was the end of that first essay. Wow. So I wrote that essay and then I sent it to a friend to say, you know, just to, to get a reaction. She's a a great editor uh, and a terrific friend. Um, and she wrote back, she said, this is, this is good. And I have the feeling that it needs two more essays. And I have the feeling that this, this is beginning as a man of middle age walking into a dark wood. Well, that's how Dante's Inferno goes. <laughs> starts. And it has two more parts. Oh, uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso. And so that that became the model. The middle essay of The Walk is my Purgatorio. And the final essay is actually titled Paradiso as a clue, which nobody in the world has ever picked up on, of the structure of the little book. Very cool. And it's a very little book. It is a little book, but it's, it is, uh, there's a lot in there. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I love it. Um, so do you, you mentioned sending it to a friend. When you're writing, do you have a core group of people you rely on to, to get feedback, or do you hole up and do it yourself, or is it somewhere in the middle there? I mean, how, is, how, how do you rely on feedback, or how it, do you deal with feedback? It's somewhere in the middle. I, I work mainly alone. I'm mostly my own most severe critic, but sometimes when I just feel like I've, uh, I've taken it as far as I can go by myself, I will you know, pass it along to whatever I'm working on to, to someone whose opinion I really respect. Mm-hmm. And on the current project I'm working on, I, I went to that same uh, editor uh, who had helped me with the walk, and, and uh, she read it and gave me some good guidance, and now I'm back beating my head into the writing desk. When you're writing, do you, do you enjoy it? Or is it a complete whipping? Or, and, or is it the kind of thing where it's a whipping, but you enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> All of the above, I think, is true. Dorothy Parker said uh, famously, writing is easy. All you do is sit down to a blank sheet of paper, open a vein, and bleed. <laughs> and... Uh, and so it, a lot of the time it hurts while it's going on, but it feels really good when you stop. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Kind of, and, uh, but there are times when, uh, 
when things are really flowing, when you get a kind of high, when you, when you lose yourself and you're, you just feel like you are the vehicle for the words to stream through and they're coming from somewhere else. And, and when that happens, there's, there's nothing oh, any better than that. Maybe one thing. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, when we, we were talking about this briefly, and I told you I'm probably going to make you repeat a lot of the stuff we talked about for an hour before yeah. we started recording, but talk about uh, how your need to be immersed in the writing on a daily basis. Because I, I thought about that when you were talking about how the first line of the book came to you. Yeah. And I would guess that as a result – of you thinking about it daily or think, having your mind in a writing space daily and it's just going on in your subconscious whether you know or not, know it or not and then it pops out but that was actually the result of a whole lot of work and thinking over time so can you talk about yeah. your, your process there so I, I have a I have a rule when it, writing isn't always the same thing composition is very different from rewriting so when I'm composing when, I, when I'm doing first drafts that's the hardest work by far. And when I'm doing first drafts, I have to be in my office at my desk by 8 o'clock in the morning, and I have to make one good sentence, at least one good sentence before 8.30, or else the day's going to be a bust. I mean, this has been true for my work for 40 years. Wow. I don't know why that is, but that's just the way it is. And if I make a good sentence before 8.30 in the morning, then chances are I'm going to have a productive day until hunger drives me into the house to get some lunch. Um, and part of what's going on there, I think, is that for the writing to be good, the subconscious has to be in, involved. And for the subconscious to be involved, your subconscious is going to gin whatever's going on in your life. You know, if you're arguing with your spouse, if you're having health problems with your parents or whatever, and, and uh, you know, you've got issues for your children, those are the things that are going to be going on in your subconscious. Your subconscious is going to be working on those things. Well, to be a good writer, you have to make sure that writing is in there with that mix of the most important things. And... And if it's not, you're going to have a hard time. And I always had a hard time back when I was trying to balance writing with fairly busy uh, conservation work and professional engagement in other areas where I wouldn't write for a while. And then I'd come back to writing and it would be just awful for two solid weeks and I wouldn't be able to get anything going. And I'd think, oh, if I ever had a gift, it's gone. I'm washed up. I can't do it anymore. It's all over. God damn it. <laughs> and, and then suddenly, after about two weeks, stuff would start to flow. Really? Just boom. And this is my crackpot theory, and I'm sure it's all wrong, but it works for me, that it took those two-week periods to kind of convince my subconscious that, yes, this is really important. You, you need to take it seriously and get involved in it. And then when the subconscious was kind of spinning along in the right way, like a flywheel on an engine, then things would go right. But it took a while for the flywheel to kind of spin down from what it was working on before sure. and spin up into what I wanted it to be working on with the writing. And um, so I've uh, I've shared that, that fiction uh, – 
fictional model of how the mind works with many students over the years. And I don't know if it works for anybody else, but it has worked for me. Well, that works for me, not with writing, but with exercise or with getting up early, just anything that requires this momentum. Um, and not even, and I don't even have to be training hard for anything, but just getting in this frame of mind where things are normal and yeah. this is normal and this is what we're going to do every day. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. That makes me, that makes me feel better. <laughs> and a takeaway for anybody out there who's, uh, who wants to be a writer or tries to be a writer or whatever is the takeaway for me is you have to be kind to yourself. Mm. Those two weeks when things aren't going well, mm. you somehow got to forgive yourself for, for not being productive and just, Keep on going, going in the in the faith that it's going to start flowing sooner or later. So that's be, good advice. Be kind to yourself along the way. So when did you? Was there a, a, a specific point when you decided? All right, I want to focus the majority of my energy on writing um, because I, I know you even right now you're still. We were just talking about some of the, the water things you're involved with here in, in New Mexico. So you're still actively involved in land conservation. But was there a shift when you thought, all right, I'm going to focus the majority of my energy on, on writing versus doing conservation deals? Well, partly it was uh, my, my kids growing up and getting through college. And, you know, when that happened, my burn rate went way down. So, <laughs> I, you know, economics plays a big role in it all does. this. And so I just always wanted to write as much as I could, given the constraints of earning a living and supporting a family and, and so forth. And, and I got a really big break in 2008, I think it was, when I got a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh. And that allowed me to step away from the teaching and some of the other stuff I was doing at the time and really focus full-time on writing for for a while and and I've been able to string that along and make that work since then. That's great. Um so I love getting into the weeds about conservation issues and your book A Great Aridness is I mean that is it's just a, a perfect it's alarming and scary but it's a great way to dig into some of these details especially some of the things that we interest we share about water. Mm-hmm. Can you just give a, a overview of I actually, I saw an interview with you on the internet where you talked about how you decided to do that book, a map you had seen. I think you were at a conference. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I do. Now that you bring that up, yeah, I was at a Kivira Coalition meeting oh, in Albuquerque yeah. at one of the big hotels, and uh, uh, Jonathan Overpeck, a climate scientist from the University of Arizona in Tucson, was giving a presentation, and he put up a slide, uh, not one of his own, but a slide from a paper by a guy named Chris Milley, uh, who works at a, uh, a NASA uh, facility, I think it is, uh, outside Princeton. And that was, uh, that map forecast 50 years hence areas of uh, great water stress and declining surface water flows, declining river flows, based on the best climate modeling of the time. And this is about 2005, 2006. And I looked up at that map, and New Mexico and everything around it was bright, bright red, you know, in full-on crisis. And I thought, oh, my God, if all this is true, 
then this land that I so love is going to have to is going to go through some terrible terrible changes and I thought at that time I thought I I want to dig into this I want to find out how Chris Milley the scientist behind this and his colleagues came up with this map I want to talk to Jonathan Overbeck I I want to I want to I want to do some primary work with the people who are figuring these things out and come to my own conclusions about uh, how much I should be concerned and, and the validity of their work and all the rest. And that was the germ of great aridness. So looking back, I mean, I, I would imagine the, the research going into that took a long time, then writing it, and, and then it uh, probably a year or two till it was actually published. And now just kind of the gap between when you, you were in deep in it and now – are the predictions that were made and the the science and are things progressing as in a, as in a scary manner as they were as they were expected to be yeah all the all the forecasts are holding up quite well except in one respect, and that is that the changes are happening faster than than they were predicted to do and there's some interesting feedback loops that account for this mm-hmm. greater acceleration than than was expected. But in general, uh, the climate modeling, I think it's some of the best science being done on Earth today. I, th- I found it absolutely fascinating to dig into it pretty deeply and, and, and understand the th- thought processes and how the, how the models evolved and what they ent- entailed and so forth. And they're just holding up beautifully well. Very sad to say, It'd be much better if they weren't, if the, if the climate weren't changing as much as it is. But having your background doing conservation deals and being in the in the weeds daily in the trenches doing conservation, and then kind of the the other side of things, studying it as deeply as you have, studying the the climate uh, challenges that that the West are facing. I mean, what what can we do? <laughs> I mean, what is the – where do you see places, realistic places, where the conservation community can make changes that can have some sort of impact? I know a lot of it is global, you know, global economics, and that's a whole different story. But as far as trying to be, produ- be productive and proactive and something that, like, people like me who work in this, where should I be focused, knowing everything you know? Well – we all have to be focused at multiple levels. You know, there's, uh, we're only going to deal with these problems as well as uh, we manage to transform our economy. And to do that, we've got to be active politically. We've got to have political change in this country. You know, it's, it's life or death. And it's not just for the United States. It's for the world. You know, people in other countries, they say, we think we should have a vote in your elections because what your country does influences what happens in That's our country point. so much. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. That thinking makes sense. Yeah. So there's the macro level, and that's that's really politics. And and it's it's transformation of the energy sector. I mean, the, the demise of Obama's clean power plan is a real tragedy for our country because th- that was a really good – uh, elemental start for changing the grid, yeah. changing how we produce power to go into the the grid. 
but there's still so much to do wherever we are. You know, I, here where I live, I'm working on defensible space and I'm trying to support forest thinning projects as much as I can. Uh, just yesterday, two guys from the USGS, two wonderful uh, ecologists were up here with me and we were brainstorming about things that, that needed doing and, and, uh, and how forest management could change for the better. You know, we need to improve uh, the way we use water in every watershed around the West. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, one of the interesting things about uh, the climate crisis, however, is that all the things that we need to do to deal with it as best we can are things that needed doing anyway. Sure. They just need doing more urgently now. Mm-hmm. If anything, the climate crisis should force us to push along with the agenda of what was already on our table in front of us. Sure. I'll tell a quick little story that uh, went and uh, this is years ago. I heard uh, one of the great Americans uh, alive today, Bill McKibben, mm-hmm. who has written more and, and done more uh, grassroots leadership on climate change than perhaps anybody else, in our country at least. Anyhow, Bill Grave gave a great talk on climate change down at uh, New Mexico State University. And afterward, during the Q&A, a lady came up to him and said, okay, so it's happening what should we do? How do we protect ourselves? How do we respond uh, to this challenge? And Bill said, well, most important thing is to live in a strong community. And the lady pursued the, the question. She said, okay, how do, you, how do you find a strong community? And Bill said, you don't. You build one. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the takeaway for all of us. Uh, on all these things. We're, we're only going to be able to deal with the challenges uh, of climate change to the extent that our communities are strong, resilient, and to the extent that we can make some serious decisions at the local level. Well, that, that led in perfectly to the next question I wanted to ask. I read that you were, I believe, one of the founding members, and I'm sure I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, the Valles Grande, no, Valles Caldera Trust. Yeah, the the Vice Caldera Trust was created by congressional uh, legislation okay, in, in okay. 2000. Purse went to the, the the federal purchase of the Baca location, w- which includes the Valle Grande and the Valles Caldera, one of the great natural areas in uh, in New Mexico, in the West, in the sure. entire West. Uh, the U.S., the United States, bought that land in the year 2000 and set up the Valles Caldera Trust to manage it. Mm-hmm. And President Clinton, in the last days he was in office, appointed the board of the Valles Caldera Trust, the first board. And I was among the appointees. Mm-hmm. And then the board elected a chairman. And I wound up chairing the Vice Caldera Trust for four years. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Because I read, I read briefly about it, but it seems like one of these great projects that brings together a lot of different interests in a community in the West. You know, you've got grazing, you've got just all these different different areas, and focuses on the positive or focuses on the common ground. Can you just talk about that project? Because I'd love to learn more about it. Well, the. The Valles Caldera is one of the most magical, most beautiful places uh, I've seen anywhere. Oh, wow. That's saying a lot. And I've 
been yeah. around a lot been of places. A few places. <laughs> and it was a great honor to be able to work for it uh, for four very intense years. And yes, our board had a, a grazing representative. It had a, a, a representative of local government. It had specialists in, uh, in timber, uh, forestry. Uh, it had all kinds of expertise brought in. It had a representative from the Forest Service and another from the Park Service. And uh, so we set out as a little... Uh, a tiny, a mini United Nations of natural resource interests mm-hmm. uh, to set up the management program for the Valles Caldera National Preserve. Okay, and uh, so that work went on, and uh, when when my uh, term ended, I wasn't reappointed. The Bush administration didn't wouldn't re- reappoint anybody who had been appointed by Clinton, and this is one of the one of the Things that undermined the viability of the uh, of the whole experiment be- was that it got kind of pulled into that the cultural politics of the country, which was a a real tragedy. Um, anyhow, the the trust persisted for another mm, eight or nine years, mm-hmm. and just a f- couple of years ago, I think it was in twenty fifteen, maybe. Uh, maybe 16, it was the, the trust was extinguished and the Valles Caldera National Preserve was transferred in toto to the National Park Service. Okay. So it's now a unit of the National Park Service and it's administered by uh, the Park Service. It's, it's an 89,000 acre uh, little piece of heaven. Uh, wow. Some, some of the most beautiful country you'll ever see. And uh, I don't know whether the FCC will censor you if I use this word on your podcast, but a friend of mine described uh, the Valles Caldera as, uh, oh, yeah, it's a holy shit place. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you drive over the rim into the caldera and look at that thing, and all you can say is, holy shit. <laughs> I need to go there then. That's quite the endorsement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah nothing better than that. So in your experience working with all those different stakeholders and trying to find common ground among people, I mean, I'd, I would imagine they're all, they all have great intentions, but at the end of the day, they, they have maybe different ways that they would choose to get there. Can you think of, how did you, how did you manage that? I mean, how did you, were there any secrets you discovered to finding common ground? Because I find in my work, that is the key, because I deal with so many different stakeholders, from government to farmers to ranchers. The other day we were having to deal with a gravel pit, uh, you know, people tra- and trying to put a gravel pit in, and you're just looking for nobody's gonna nobody's gonna do anything if you start insulting them or, or holding right. your ground. So how do you find that common ground? What's your what's been your experience with that? I'm very uh, selfish in my questions. It's well, just like a career advice session. For I, <laughs> I somewhere along the line, I I came to the conclusion that reason and reasoning wasn't usually the answer. Really? Uh, when I've had to deal with people who were at the outset really opposed to what they perceived as my agenda, uh, reason almost never helped very much. Interesting. But what did help was breaking bread, mm. just spending informal time with people and having a meal. There is something about the way humans connect to each other that changes when 
you're having a laugh because somebody ordered a burrito that looks too big for the plate. I mean, it, it just having a meal together uh, creates a bond that is hard to explain. And um, doing land conservation work or putting together a, a grass bank or working on the hardest things with the Vias Caldera, I just think it was uh, the key was was the time you spent with people when you weren't trying to get anything done. Yeah. Maybe it allows them to see you. You can see each other as people and you can separate the idea from the person. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so often uh, the trick of putting together any kind of a alliance or, or deal or common cause is just getting people to let go of their positions and focus on their interests. Mm-hmm. And so often our positions get in the way of our own interests. And if you spend a little time and let people know what your interests are and and they can stop thinking about what they perceive as your positions and you do the same for them, well, you're starting to get somewhere. I think that's great advice. And I, I found that down, you know, dealing with, with farmers and we, we have dinners as part of, you know, when we're trying to have a meeting about something, there's always food involved, and that yeah. always gets it off to a, a good start. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we, we talked about this a bit before, but I had your, your audio book, and you read it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. My car ride. But it's this amazing adventure story, history lesson, science story on the complete other side of the world. And I'd encourage people to go and read that book, but... I guess to bring it back to what we're talking about here, how have these international adventures, that one and then the, the other one that we were talking about before, how those international adventures change your perspective on life here, if they have it all? I mean, how has how is when you're comparing and contrasting, you get away and you see a different culture, does it change your thoughts on, on this area at all? I don't know if it changes my thoughts on this area, but uh, those – experiences going into you know deep into the heart of Laos or into the loneliest corner of Nepal um, and traveling with with the people who live there and getting to know some folks I I feel as though these are adventures in falling even deeper in love with the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I come back to my own little postage stamp of territory here, just feeling like ever more in awe of the the beauty and complexity of this world in which we live. Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's been my experience, and I've got a lot less of it than you um, when it comes to travel, but... When you think about writers and thinkers that have that you admire and that have influenced your voice, who comes to mind? Well, I mentioned Peter Matheson mm-hmm. a while ago. Sure. Uh, you know, the the work that I've done in Nepal has been on the same trails that he and George Schaller uh, traveled in 1973, the uh, expedition that produced The Snow Leopard, one of the great nonfiction books. Um but when I 
when I really when I think about the model of nonfiction writing that I that uh, inspires me the most, I keep going back to John McPhee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's the the master of nonfiction in the 20th century in America, and still today he's writing brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, but other writers that really inspire me, a lot of them are from the 19th century. I, really? you know, I don't. I've never uh, drunk dry the the well of Henry David Thoreau. Uh-huh. Uh, I was writing about him on something just the other day. Uh, yeah. He's continuously uh, inspiring to me. Uh, yeah, and uh, I just I think we're. It it makes me sad that literature is studied less and less in our colleges and universities sure. today, uh, and not least because. Um, I'd feel that it has given me so much enjoyment and taught me so much in the course of my life, and I just feel badly for people who don't um, get the the opportunity to immerse themselves in great books the way that that I did. Yeah, it it really is important, and I I feel like when I was in college, I didn't. I didn't focus on it as much. I just did the homework. Uh-huh. And now it has become such a huge part of my life. And it's, I mean, it's one of the most important things I do. It's, is, and, and a lot of t- time I don't really want to read. I want to go to sleep or whatever, but I force myself to do it because yeah. it brings so much richness to my life. You've mentioned teaching a few times. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your your work in teaching? And, and may, may, first of all, what have you taught? And then second of all, how has that teaching influenced your thinking? Because I've always found when I have to teach somebody something, I learn it a lot better than, than if I think I know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Well, all through my adult life, I've been uh, doing the the occasional writing workshop and uh, sometimes a week-long kind of uh, intensive, that kind of thing. So that's one kind of teaching. But for sustained teaching, the only time I've really... Well, I've taught a a few visiting professor kinds of of courses, but I taught for five years continuously at the College of Santa Fe, ending in about uh, 2008 or seven, And uh, I taught in a program called Documentary Studies. And it's basically about going out into the world and and researching a a live current problem by... Being in touch with people and 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 using photography and nonfiction writing to tell their stories, sure. and uh, that experience of teaching influenced me a lot because the things I wound up emphasizing to my students, I realized, oh, I could have done that better uh, in my own work that I've done up to this time, and uh, when I undertook to write a great aridness, I very consciously tried to follow my own advice that I had been professing in my classes for five years. And uh, a great aridness sort of epitomizes what I was trying to uh, tell my students about in terms of method. That's really cool. Well, I've got a a few questions that I like to ask everybody I have on the podcast towards Uh the end because it's been fun to kind of compare and contrast. And and so the first one is if you had to pick one or two or three of your favorite all time books about the American West, and it's a hard question. I don't know how I would answer that. But do you have one, two, three favorite books about the West? Well, 
Something by Wallace Stegner should be in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think his, uh, his various collections of nonfiction essays, uh, uh, they, they'd been put together under various titles in various ways, uh, would work there. Stegner had a great blind spot, though. He didn't understand Native America worth a darn. And so I uh, put that asterisk there, but he understood the, the the aridity of the land and how that shapes everything that takes place on it. Um, I would also emphasize something to do with John Wesley Powell, yeah, who has yeah. been a, a historical figure fascinating to me. I did a book on him some years ago. Uh, and uh, and to top it off, I'd, I'd throw Ed Abbey in there too. <laughs> Uh, Desert Solitaire was one of the most inspiring books uh, I, I read when I was in my 20s. And I thought, dadgummit, I want to get out there and live and write like that. What's your favorite book of all time? Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, is it Moby Dick? Is it something by Conrad? Uh, is it, uh, you know, the collected works of Willie Shakespeare? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> you I keep go going. Middlemarch, uh, George Eliot. My God, that is that. I think that's the best novel ever written uh, in English, originally in English. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So George Eliot's right. It. I I actually did this once. I recommend the practice to uh, you and to your listeners. Um, I found myself with my friends referring to Walt Whitman always as Uncle Walt. And it made me wonder why did I think of Walt Whitman as in those fami- familial terms. And then I began to think of Aldo Leopold as Uncle Aldo. And then I thought, okay, who are the other uncles and ah. aunts? And I began one day to make a list of all the the figures, public and private, who have really shaped who I am because I just wanted to be able to say thank you, oh. at least mentally. And so I came up with a list of, I don't know, maybe 300 Did you really? Aunts, 300? Aunts and uncles, yeah. And, uh, it was, and then I alphabetized it. Wow. And then I had fun looking at a series of... Uh, of five names together and thinking, what kind of basketball team would they make? And <laughs> so you got uh, Dante Alighieri and Dwayne Allman there in the backcourt together. <laughs> so anyhow, um, you know, picking one favorite doesn't get there for me, but uh, because there are so many, and and that's what that's what makes life rich. And I think uh, if we if we Never do anything else. We should learn to say thank you for all the things that we've gotten from all those people who passed us along and gave us a gift or wrote a book for us or, or a piece of music uh, that helped I us agree. become I think who we are. Gratitude's the secret to happiness, I think. Yeah. You, can, you can force yourself to be grateful. Yeah. You know? that's, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. Yeah, aunts and, aunts and uncles. I'm going to do that. Um, so all your adventures all over the place— if you had to think, if you had to nail it down to one of the most one most powerful experience you've had in the outdoors, and powerful could be scary, it could be funny, it could be just an experience that you think back on as wow, that was intense. Does anything come to mind? Well, just 
Two months ago, I was in the Arctic. I floated a river from the uh, north slope of the Brooks Range through the Arctic Refuge and out to the Arctic Ocean. Wow. And uh, for uh, 10 of the 12 days we were out there, uh, we were surrounded by migrating caribou uh, the whole time. It was utterly awe-inspiring at every moment. We watched uh, wolves hunting doll sheep on uh, a distant mountain slope, uh, watching them through binoculars. We uh, we encountered uh, a number of grizzlies uh, along the way, and all those caribou. At the end, we were looking at seals out on Arctic uh, flows in the ocean. Um, yeah, that was just six weeks ago. <laughs> That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard to beat. Uh, and I'll, and I'll I'll add that that is land that is threatened by this present administration for oil development to to tap oil that the world doesn't need mm-hmm. and cannot afford to burn. But out of spite, they're doing this just because they want to show, along with the oil and gas industry, that nobody stops them. Not. Anywhere, not any time. Actually, I had an op-ed in the New York Times on this subject uh, uh, last month. That uh, yeah, you, you said that to I me. Mean, yeah, I, I, that was great. Anyhow, it's just this is just one more travesty, one more fight we have to fight to try to protect uh, what's left of uh, the natural world. It's unfortunate because when you're dealing with bullies, the only way to deal with them is to push back. You know, that's been my experience, mm-hmm. and with these type of people. That's what they are, is they're bullies, and you cannot stop pushing because the minute you show weakness, they're going to they're gonna push That's back. That's right. And so I'm glad to know. I've got a lot of different friends from different aspects of my life who have gone up there in, a, in an effort to tell the story. Yeah. And uh, so, well, thank you for spending your time doing that because that's important for a lot of reasons. And then part of it is it, it just – I don't want bullies to win. <laughs> that's right. You know, just take all yeah, the details out, and I don't that, like it when bullies win. That's true, too. And, so, yeah, and we're seeing them. the same kind of thing down on our, our southern border with uh, the construction of this insane 30-foot-high border wall that will be lit all night, all night long. Uh, construction is now scheduled for going through some of the most beautiful wild land in the, the southeast Arizona, southwest mm-hmm. New Mexico territory, some of the most diverse, wildest country you've got uh, left yes. in, the, in the lower 48. It is a travesty uh, beyond conception. It's just phenomenal, the amount of destruction that uh, these people are, are working on, and uh, we've got to stop them. Two of my past podcast guests just uh, produced this movie. Um, it's called The River and the Wall. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a documentary. And they travel the length of the, the Texas border, yeah. mountain bikes, horses, and then canoes. Yeah. And they explore what will happen, what will be the effects, mostly on wildlife um, and, and from an ecological conservation perspective, if that wall is built. Yeah. And they show just how rugged that country is. Yeah. And a wall is kind of silly. I mean, a wall, it's, if anything, make it easier to get through. I mean, that wall ridiculous. would be the easiest piece of terrain in the whole place. It's, it's you know, it, it's all about bragging rights and it's not really about policy. It's not, sol- it's not about solving the problems. Mm-hmm. It's... It, it's not even about immigration. It's about uh, gratification on the part of you-know-who. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, the bully thing. The bully, the bully in the White House. We can, uh, we can have a whole different podcast about that. Uh, two more questions. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask you anyway. Where is your favorite place in the West? Right here. Right here. <laughs> Easy enough. Yeah. And then this is a little bit of a hard one, but I bet you'll have a great answer. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Mm. In terms of writing, it was uh, write any way where any way is two words and write any way mm. where any way is one word. That's great. I've never heard that. Write any way and write any way. That's great. All the writers listening need to put yeah. that, maybe tattoo it on your forearm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for all your hard work and uh, telling these important stories and for just being a, a great example of, of what one can do with, uh, with a little bit of vision and a lot of hard work. So no, thank you I so really much, Ed. It. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.